Um, we came up with this idea that it would be cool to have a drone fly down the runway with a woman like holding part of her dress. Yeah, so we wanted like a sexy server room look. <laughs> I got really into like looking at beautifully uh, sorted server room cables. Like I don't know if you ever oh, just, yeah. like, go on the internet, you see like someone's done a there's really a, great <laughs> series of cables. There's like, a wow. subreddit called cable porn. <laughs> yeah, totally. Today we're talking about making things. I sit down with a leader in the maker community to find out what she's done and what's happening in Toronto. We talk about different projects, maker spaces, science fiction, recycling, being in space, and lots of other topics. So I hope you enjoy it. Here's episode 11 of the Toronto Tech Podcast. My guest today is a leader in Toronto's maker community. She's launched a wearables Kickstarter, been part of Gilded Eyewear, OCAD Social Body Labs, as well as being heavily involved in the Toronto maker community. Hillary, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So the first thing I want to get into, I want to get a general sense of the Toronto maker community. How big is it and how busy is it? What's going on? Um, I feel like the Toronto maker community has changed a lot over the years, and I think the maker community in general is kind of in flux. As of this morning, Maker Media laid off all of their employees and is insolvent. Ooh. So 2019 is a very different time than like 2014, 2015, where there's a lot of money behind the stuff and things are really starting to blow up. So I feel like, I don't know, it's getting a little maybe scrappier again. There was maybe a time when there was... um. Yeah, a lot of kind of random money coming in because people are really excited about things. Um, there's, you know, five or six makerspaces in Toronto. I used to be quite involved in Site 3. And, like, Absolute and, like, Vice used to just sponsor things kind of out of the blue. The liquor and the or the magazine? Yeah. Huh. Um, I remember once we had Absolute sponsor this party and, like, they clearly thought it was going to be really different than it was. There was, like, these blonde babes with, like, their long hair pulled back. And they were all the bartenders. And there was just, like, a bunch of dorks. Like, <laughs> and there wasn't even that many people. There was, like, 40 to 50 people. And they, like, sponsored a lot of booze. It was wow. very bizarre. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I don't feel that things are really like that uh, anymore. I think hmm. a lot of spaces have had challenges around real estate in the past few years. Like... Um, Toronto Library just moved. Hack Lab just moved. Mm -hmm. I know Site 3 had to do some crowdfunding to keep their doors open. Um, so yeah, I think things are starting to kind of go a bit more to really member funded and like grassroots as opposed to kind of bigger things. And unfortunately, so Toronto Maker Festival broke away from like Maker Fair, the brand under the like Maker Media umbrella. But unfortunately, they're not going to run this July, um, not because they're insolvent, but because the Toronto Public Library had a series of very bizarre changes in regulations that just made it not really viable. Hmm. So this, this community is definitely going through some changes, definitely some mm -hmm. contraction. And you, you mentioned the, the Toronto Public Library, which I know has really picked up in the makerspace community. Um, they've added 3D printers, 3D scanners a couple years ago. How involved have they been with the rest of the community? Where do they fit into the picture? I feel like they're a separate stream. Like, I've never been so involved with them, but I know, like, they've had kind of innovator and in residence programs over the years where they'll bring in people for 10-week programs and that kind of thing. 
But I feel like, um, I don't know, they serve a more broad base. Like often makerspaces are quite niche. Like this will be like a really intense hackerspace where people are working on like, you know, securities projects and um, people get pretty far down into their niche. And I think the library provides like quite broad-based access to things like 3D printers. Their 3D printing rates are absurd. They're I can't remember exactly how cheap they are, but they're just like so, so, so inexpensive. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I feel like they're not necessarily as connected into like, you know, a larger social scene, but I think that they're providing probably like per person and like for the cost, like the most programming for sure. Mm-hmm. I think last I saw they were at $5 for an hour of time on a printer. And that was largely just to cover the plastics cost, yeah, which is, you know, a nothing rate. But now the Toronto Tool Library allows you to use the 3D printers. Uh, there's an open community day mm-hmm. and you can just show up and use the printers for nothing, I think, or for almost nothing. Yeah, I think on community night uh, we charge just for, for plastic as well, but I'm not 100% certain the, uh, the makerspace there. So we at uh, the Tool Library moved into what had been Steam Labs at 192 Spadina. Um, and so, yeah, all of the policies have had kind of change over the, um, I guess it's been about seven months. So everything's kind of emergent. Mm-hmm. Um, all the costs are like, you know, we're still figuring out exactly what's the right, yeah. where's the right place for that to land. And this, the Toronto Tool Library itself is quite new. Uh, well, this makerspace, but the, uh, the organization itself is over six years old. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Because hmm. uh, Toronto Tool Library became popular i feel or present to me within the last two years or so okay and i know this one it's badina mm-hmm. uh, i visited it in preparation for this podcast oh, nice. and it's an amazing space i could not believe some of the stuff they had there uh, everything from a giant cnc machine almost the size of this table which was like three feet by five feet i believe it's even bigger than that it'll do a full sheet uh like a four by eight uh sheet of plywood wow yeah, yeah it's big <laughs> I didn't expect to see that in the heart of downtown Toronto. It's pretty wild. It's a really, um, really unique thing. And a lot of that really is owed to um, CSI, like the Center for Social Innovation, who's the landlord, as well as Steam Lab. So they were the previous tenant uh, run by Andy Forrest. And they've changed their business model, which is why they gave up their lease there. Um, so they had been an adult-focused makerspace with lots of children's programming but they've kind of chosen to focus on children's programming and they're doing it across the city in several different locations. Yeah, Andy really built up that space and put in a lot of renovations and purchased um, like the CNC machine that's been bought from Steam Labs by Tool Library. Right, so Steam Labs really, really set up the space and made it, a bit, made it uh, perfect for you guys to move into. Yeah, and I think um, CSI being a landlord that, you know, was willing to take a chance on such a non-traditional tenant is really interesting. And like that even feeds back to um, CSI purchased the building on Spadina through a program called um, Community Bonds, which essentially meant that like community members invested in their company to be able to buy this building. So yeah, it kind of like cascades back in a kind of legacy of interesting, Mm -hmm. innovative approaches to ownership and access that like have allowed for this really bizarre, wonderful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, Getting the community all involved in putting it together. You also mentioned there's kids programs that's being a focus now that was not a focus or the focus is changing a little bit. Um, So that's with Steam Labs. So they're the ones who are doing the children's programming. 
Do you know what kind of children's programs they have? What are they doing? Um, yeah, so there's things like robot building and um, Unity and Minecraft are really popular. Um, and I think there's potentially other coding stuff, but the the Minecraft and Unity are really popular for mm-hmm. sure. So making your own game in Unity or making your own mod, I guess, in Minecraft? Yeah, I think some of the Minecraft stuff too is just like structured time for kids to like play Minecraft. <laughs> I'm not 100% oh, certain, man. but like it's I think a- they do a lot of just playing Minecraft. If that was around when I was a kid, that is all I would be trying to do. <laughs> it looks fun. I've never actually played it. No? I, I had a I had a phase of it way, way back when it was a brand new idea, before all the kids got hold of it. Um, and I played, this was in university, I played an embarrassing amount of Minecraft. Yeah, I think I need to avoid games like that because I just get really obsessive. Like recently I found this game where you try to turn the entire universe into paper clips. <laughs> and I played so much of it. I was at this convention with my friends and I kept on leaving to go like check on my laptop and change the parameters and then walk away. Oh no. <laughs> it's anyways, it's total this is totally a tangent, but like this paperclip game, really interesting. It like models um like systems dynamics behaviors and you're like an AI that's trying to like balance all the things. I love that as a concept for a game because that's the old AI adage. Like, what if you just teach a machine learning algorithm to focus on one thing? Well, then the whole world's a paperclip. Yeah. (laughs) So, like, the idea is you turn the entire universe. Like, it's just (laughs) so silly, but it's so compelling. (laughs) All right. Let's talk a little bit about the Make Change Conference, which is something you've been a part of. Yeah. So, um, I believe this past year was the fourth year. Um, yeah, I believe it was the fourth year. Uh, so make change is something I started with Lee Wilkins as little data. And the first year it was actually at CSI Annex on Bathurst street. It was quite small. It was just like one day of short talks, mostly people we knew in the community. Yeah, it was kind of like an interesting gathering. Generally we're trying to get people together to talk about the intersection of maker culture and social change or social innovation Um, So we've had people talk about, you know, histories of different technologies or the kinds of programs they're running or thinking about. And then after that first year, we partnered with Design Exchange. So that's the, um, like, design-focused museum here in Toronto. So I think two years Mm -hmm. they hosted it. And then this past year it was at Toronto uh, Media Arts. What's TMAC stand for? Toronto Media Arts. I, I don't know that one. I don't know. It was at TMAC, which is very we'll, we'll cool. It's like a it's a new space um, on Liscar Street in the West End. So it hosts like a Gamma Space and DMG and Charles Street Video and a whole bunch of other media arts mm. organizations. And they have really great gathering space for yeah for having events. So there's more and more. It sounds like communities and events that are happening around makers. Even though it sounds like there's a contraction in general right now, mm-hmm. but there's a lot more than there was five or six years ago. I think. Five or uh, let's say ten years ago, the only thing that existed was the Toronto Hack Lab in mm-hmm. the Kensington Market. Do you see this trend continuing, or do you see this slowing down, coming in? I don't know. It's changing in some ways. One new uh, space in the city I'm really excited about is the Daniel's Launchpad building. It's part of um, it's an artscape initiative, and so they've got this series of studios down on um, on Queens Key by Jarvis, and like, it's incredible. They have, like, textiles, jewelry, CNC machines, woodshop, 3D printers, mm. um, then a whole bunch of, like, media stuff. So, like, 
green screen rooms and like hmm. film studios. And so it's all intended to um, have people who are like in early stages of their careers join and then go through for a few years and kind of launch their career. And I think that you're starting to see like a lot of, um, like I feel like things are getting kind of more specific. Like before it was like a broad base, like, oh yeah, I'm making stuff. Um, right. But now like I, I think that people are starting to be able to like really reach into those niches and yeah, you know, start your like bespoke CNC top carving business, which exists uh, it somewhere. Exists here. Yeah. <laughs> My dad has a lot of tops they made. They're really nice tops, hmm. like spinning tops. Yeah. Do any of them fall over, like the one from Inception? They have a, like, pretty similar vibe. Hmm. Yeah, they'd, like, <laughs> they'd be a good little, like, I can a imagine, trinket. I can imagine people nerding out for that, like, that specific top. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. So interesting. It, it sounds like it's more broad what is available now, whereas five, ten years ago, it was just a laser cutter and maybe a 3D printer, and that's what Maker makerspaces was whereas now you're saying it's getting into media production like you have access to green screens and just a wider variety of stuff yeah and I think too um I I don't know where this fits into it but like YouTube has gotten so absurdly good at like providing instruction for anything Mm -hmm. um yeah even so I guess like I started getting involved in maker stuff probably like 2012 and yeah, I just feel like there's there wasn't such a wealth of information available online. Like now, any kind of um, like cut you want to learn to do on a saw, like there's just endless and endless endless content. Mm-hmm. Like my partner watches so much woodworking YouTube. I didn't even realize how much <laughs> was out there. And then we started dating, and like it's endless. Uh-huh. And it's professional. It's not. It's a lot less. Um, some guy with a with audio quality you can barely hear from across a room. It's very instructional, very professional. Yeah, it's wild. And like people are clearly getting paid for it. There's like some mm-hmm. old man in his garage. He's got like beautiful production quality. And he's like, and then my sponsor bought me this saw. And you're just like, wow. How? How did this come to be? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I feel like kind of all across, it's probably not just maker stuff, like everything with like the proliferation of the internet and, you know, expanded media production. Like there's so many tiny niches that are like, you don't even know they exist. And then you see them one day and you're like, oh, wow, like people are making billions of dollars on artisanal pet food. Huh. <laughs> it's yeah, it's so bizarre, yeah. but really fascinating. Yeah. There's an incredible amount of niches in the world. That's one of the things that's most exciting for me doing this podcast mm-hmm. is discovering all these little pockets that I had no idea existed in Toronto. Like the like what you're talking about on on Jarvis and, and Queensquay the space where there's all these different productions. I had no idea that was there. It's gorgeous. I'd heard it existed. Um, and I hadn't gone for months and months. My dad is actually a member there. He's recently retired and now he's, uh, getting into laser cutting, which I think is awesome. Um, (laughs) but so he's a member there and I met up with him uh, and some friends a couple weeks ago and it just blew my mind. I was incredibly impressed. It's one of the nicest studio facilities. Like yeah, I've ever really seen. I can't think of a reason I would need to work there because I already have a studio and I pay a fair bit of money <laughs> to rent it. So like it just doesn't make sense for me to try to join there. But um, yeah, it's pretty incredible. But if that wasn't the case, that would be perfect. Yeah, totally. So we've talked about a lot of different spaces. I want to talk a little bit about the OCAD Social Body Lab, which yeah. I know you've been involved with and has kind of helped you or propel you in some respects. Yeah, definitely. Um so Kate Hartman is the director of the Social Body Lab. She's a 
can never get the terms for professors right. She's an associate professor, I believe, at um, OCAD University. And right now she's actually taken over um, as the graduate chair for the Digital Futures graduate program. So she's been a little less uh, active in running a lot of programs through the lab. But that does mean that she's really active in making this graduate program really awesome. So if anyone uh, is looking for a cool grad school... Go hang out with Kate at OK. Shout out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, so the Social Body Lab is generally focused on wearable technologies, but looking at them from more of a social interactive context. So instead of like, you know, what's the best heads up display we can make? Like, Mm -hmm. what does it mean to put a heads up display on your face and then start talking to someone? Like, does that change uh, your interaction? So kind of like Mm -hmm. looking at how technologically mediated... It's almost like more the human side of what happens when you interface with technology and what sort of different things will come up in that interaction. Yeah, definitely. And that's been a really big focus uh, in all of Kate's research, I'd say. Um, So there's been different projects that have emerged, like um, Nudgeables is this toolkit for kind of like sending wireless communications in ways that are like um, physical. So it's about like making switches that like live on your body and clothing so you could like Mm. do some sort of secret message that sends something to a to a person within a social situation um so it's almost like some device will like poke you or nudge you in some way yeah so it uses like a vibration motors but yeah totally huh that's an interesting one that uh one of one of the first um casino uh, hacks where someone took computers into a casino to defeat devices were they had a little button in their shoe and they would tap their foot as the ball went around the roulette wheel and then the computer would that was tucked away behind them would add up, would predict where the ball was going to land and then through a series of pokes would tell them what number it was going to be and that's how they would place their bets. Yeah, so. I've seen that. That like um, eventually got caught and they, were, they yeah. were banned. But I think that's definitely one of the first wearable computers. Like that's... And also, like, really useful. I feel like lots of wearable computers are mm-hmm. not necessarily super useful. <laughs> in a more practical sense, there was one from someone who worked in the Toronto Hack Lab who built this anklet with eight different motors around the outside. Yeah, the North Paw. That's, that's Eric right. Boyd. Yeah, that's a cool one. So, yeah, it'll uh, have a vibration motor when you're, when you're pointing north on, like, whatever part of your body. Exactly. So you always know which way is north, even in the subway. But, yeah, so I worked with Kate and... Yeah, it was, it's always been like an interesting thing to be involved in the lab. Uh, as Little Data also, we worked as artists in residence at the Social Body Lab. And that's, we produced a couple of our pretty cool wearables there. Um, of course, I say, oh, our, our work is so cool. But no, we made uh, this piece, Android Apparatus, um, while we were working out of there, as well as the uh, drone dress that that's right. was part of Make Fashion. Let's take a minute because you've dropped a couple of things that I want to get into. Sure. The first one is, frankly, the most interesting one to me was the RE Familiar or the drone dress as it's mm-hmm. known. Tell us what that was and what gave you this idea? Um, I don't even know where the idea came from, but essentially it's called RE Familiar on paper, but colloquially always just called the drone dress. Um, we came up with this idea that it would be cool to have a drone fly down the runway with a woman like holding part of her dress. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why we <laughs> thought that was cool. But. Well, as a, someone who had no idea this was coming and saw this, I thought that was one of the coolest things I've ever seen on a runway. <laughs> nice. I likened it almost to the long tail of a wedding dress, except instead of dragging, 
it was a drone carrying it behind you and it looked super elegant. Yeah, um, one one thing we've often said about that is like, what would it look like if a server room got married? Because <laughs> like the main portion of this garment, right. um, and like garment in the loosest sense of the word, is a series of Ethernet cables yeah. like curved into this uh, body device. Like I don't, know, it's <laughs> these <all> yellow <laughs> Ethernet cables stacked perfectly beside each other. Yeah, so we wanted, like, a sexy server room look. <laughs> I got really into, like, looking at beautifully uh, sorted server room cables. Like, I don't know if you ever oh, just, yeah. like, go on the internet, you see, like, someone's done a there's really a, great <laughs> series of cables. There's like, wow. a subreddit called Cable Porn. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> so this is, like, personifying that. Um, mm. And then also putting a drone there for some reason. So, yeah, it's, like, all these Ethernet cables and then silk. Um, and that was nuts. So Make Fashion is this group out of Calgary, um, and they do lots of wearable technology fashion shows. Yeah, we'd heard about them, heard really good things. So we applied online and then were accepted. So we like made this thing. We're planning to go out to Calgary. And then it was um, in Telus Spark, which is like Calgary's science museum. And we had to apply to the Ministry of Transportation to like get an exemption to be able what? to fly the drone for a drone to yeah. get it indoors. Yeah, um, which was really bizarre. <laughs> like writing this form like to the government, we're like, yes, uh, this drone is going to go about ten meters. <laughs> <laughs> it's it was... going to carry a payload of about five hundred grams. <laughs> yeah, it was very bizarre, and like. Shout out to the Creative Technologist Group of Toronto. They uh, lent us drones to work on this because this must have been maybe like four years ago now. Like drones were quite a bit more expensive. Mm -hmm. We couldn't really afford one. But the ones we had weren't very great. Like it was very hard to balance them um, and they weren't very strong. So Lee wrote like this whole node server with this way of like talking to the drones to control them. But... Like, it was just way too complicated. So in the end, um, we just had it go, like, up, and then the girl pulled the thing, and then it went down. And, like, as we took her out to the runway, like, we did not know if it was going to work because we had not managed to do a full run. <laughs> really? worked, yeah. Well, the video showed it going off without a hitch. I never would have guessed you had all these problems. But Excellent. it was controlled manually, I thought, by somebody. Someone looked like they were holding a controller on the side of the runway. Yeah, um, I think that's Lee, and there's a computer, I think. Um, but, like, it just turns on and then turns off. Like, we, yeah, we'd initially planned for it to, like, have a series of more complex movements. But there's just so many factors. Yeah. And also, unfortunately, we just didn't have very much time to rehearse. Because, like, a fashion show is very, um, very scheduled. Like, every run through, it was like, okay, and then you walk, you walk, you walk, you walk, turn, next model. Right. And, like, you know, they have... 50 looks or something that can't like give us so much time um i think they managed to give us like five minutes at one point to like try things out um and that was kind of it that's unheard of for a runway walk right that's a lot of time uh, yeah well like just yeah for like testing and things but um yeah that was really interesting and make fashion was super supportive and lovely like after that um we became friends with many of the people involved in the project and we've worked with them in different ways yeah they're good dudes well, not just dudes. Good people. <laughs> Good people. Um, so let's talk now about um, a company that you started. Yeah. Uh, named after an intersection of a very niche joke called Little Dada. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
so with my friend Lee Wilkins, who I met at OCAD through a bunch of different wearable stuff, um, we started this company, Little Data. So kind of like big data and then like dataism. Yeah, it's a very it's a very <laughs> niche joke. And then our logo is like a Marcel Duchamp piece, which is a vial of Paris air, which just also makes no sense. Um, <laughs> so we're like an absurdist tech collective, I'd say. Um, so we've done everything from like, you know, these art projects like the the drone dress or um, residency at the Social Body Lab to more serious things like Make Change Conference or we've done a fair bit of programming around like critical tech issues. So we've hosted um, uh, some different artists to like come in and talk about like um, a friend Laquan, she did something called AfroScanned, which was a workshop about how the history of photography devalued uh, people with dark skin. So like photography is really biased to lighter skin tones and has better uh, like visual results with lighter skin tones. So people who have dark skin or black, like photography right. hasn't always been as successful at capturing their likeness. And then that's kind of carried over into things like 3D scanning. Um, and then so she talks about kind of the implications of race and racial bias in uh, technologies and then also teaches people to do 3D scanning. Um, mm. And so we've tried to support projects like like Laquan's or like bring people together through different workshops as well as making, um, yeah, just like fundamentally absurdist art. <laughs> <laughs> like trying to like walk the line between serious tech doing, criticism and just absolutely right. Doing something useful, the benefit society and doing something satisfying and ridiculous and more like human. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's an interesting, uh, you know, balance to try to strike. But we have, uh, yeah, we have a lot of fun. And over the years, we've kind of done things more frequently or less frequently. So uh, the past year, we haven't really done too many projects because things have been pretty busy. Lee just started a PhD, and I was um, really involved in this tool library stuff. But then this winter, we're, or sorry, it's summer. This it's summer. finally summer now. <laughs> we're working on a project with um, the Hand-Eye Society. So they are doing a series of projects at Evergreen Brickworks. And we'll be doing one that we're calling Skylab Revolution that is an interactive uh, spaceship for hmm. children. And so it's like in a park and then like there's different ways that they can like interface and interact with the park. So there's like some microscopes and kaleidoscopes and periscopes and stuff they can like explore hmm. the, uh, the space with. Uh, Skylab, I remember reading, was the predecessor to the International Space Station for, from North America. It's mm -hmm. a North American specific one. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is something actually I didn't know anything about before uh, finding it as something that you were talking about. I, I'm not going anywhere with this. I just thought that was cool as hell. <laughs> well, so the reason we called it Skylab Revolution is because the thought to be only uh, labor action in space was... Well, that's right. There was a strike on the Soviet uh, space station. No, it was on Skylab. It was on Skylab. It was on Skylab. It's like contentious as to how much of a strike it was and how long they were off radio... Um, there's a lot of different stories out there, but essentially like down to like five minute intervals, the astronauts on Skylab were intensely, intensely scheduled and they were like falling behind and it was and incredibly And they were being stressful. pressured more and more as they were falling behind. Yeah. yeah. So um, in some capacity, they stopped communicating with mission control and then after a period of time renegotiated um, how they used their time. And I think essentially like managed to get their 
personal time unstructured. Like it was down to the point. It was like, here, you, now you wash dishes. Now you do this. Now you do this. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so Lee is very, very into the history of space and is always telling me all these uh, fascinating space anecdotes. So we thought it was fitting to, I don't know, celebrate uh, anarchic space situations. Mm-hmm. The, the astronauts taking uh, <laughs> taking back taking the a sky strike. Lab. Yeah, the first ever. And I think NASA and the other space agencies have learned a lot from that strike. It was the first of its kind, and it absolutely changed the perception of how NASA planned their missions. Like one of the things that came out of that was there will never be a mission without at least one veteran astronaut, someone who's been oh, up before. Oh, interesting. Which at the time of this uh, Skylab strike, all of them were brand new astronauts. Yeah. As well as planning way more for what if things don't go perfectly? Let's make sure we still allocate time for the human elements of things like downtime. But the pressure from the other side is very real. I, I think the number was in the ballpark of $13 million per hour is the cost of being in space. Jeez, yeah, that's wild. So their time obviously is very valuable. But it's humans up there. It's not robots. So we can't treat them as machines. It's interesting because probably many of these things robots would be better at. Even things like... um. Going to Mars, there's no discernible reason why it's valuable to send humans to do it. And like the number of challenges it presents, everything from like radiation and human bodies don't really, you know, get along to the like incredibly long amount of time that people would be isolated. Mm -hmm. But like humans just like it. Like we just want people to go to Mars. And I don't know. It's very bizarre. I don't know what's up with this phenomenon, (laughs) but people can't get off that train, even though the realities of being on Mars would be pretty crummy. Yeah, I think it would be terrible. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Like one other uh, thing, I'm just absolutely obsessed with science fiction. Um, And the Mars series by Kim Stanley Robinson, I think has like really good uh, explorations of what it would be like if people were to go and colonize Mars. Um, And so it's like hard sci-fi, but there's a lot of like interesting kind of like social explorations and... Mm. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the time it'd be really bad. Yeah, I would. So you would not be on that rocket to Mars, I take it. No. Me neither. There's, I'm, I, I share that passion of sci-fi. There's a book I read um, fairly early on called "The Moon Is a Harsh Mistress." I've heard of that. I haven't read that. The premise is where we treat the same way that Australia was used as a dumping ground for prisoners. We use the moon as the same idea, and eventually the same thing happens, where they declare their independence and they stop sending goods and services back to Earth, and they say we're our own. We're our own thing with our own policies. But the social elements of everything were incredibly fascinating. How they dealt with the incredible resource constraints that exist in, on, in that environment. And just all the, so, the way they treated each other. Everyone has an understanding that we're all, for some reason, in exile. And, but here we're all free. There's no hierarchy or there's no, um, there's no looking up or looking down on people for whatever your crimes were. Everybody resets when they get there. Cool. Yeah, I should check that out. Uh, anyways, sci-fi, no problems with tangents. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things we haven't talked about yet that you founded was Gilded Eyewear or, sorry, not founded. Uh, so yeah, Guild Eyewear. Um, no, I didn't found at all. I was just, uh, I was an employee there. It was interesting. So Guild is like a mass customization, or I guess was a mass customization model around um, making eyewear with CNC machines. So this lovely, wonderful man, Rod Fitzsimmons Frey, I became friends with at Site3. And he's 
truly incredible engineer. He like made this really interesting workflow that um, went from like a browser-based software to the CNC machine and yeah, like had this whole supply chain worked out. But um, I don't know that mass customization is necessarily actually what people want. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's like a lot of inherent challenges in just like tracking orders and that kind of thing. Um, So I really enjoyed working there. Rod's a great engineer, but I don't (laughs) think that being an engineer and running a fashion company uh, fit very well (laughs) together. But the good news of all of this is um, this lovely man, Odin, whose last name I can't remember, um, who has a background as an industrial designer working in eyewear, had kind of like come and stopped by the shop a few times because he was really interested in, yeah, what was going on. He'd been doing freelance stuff where he was just sending off files for, you know, his whole career. So he was really interested in looking at fabrication and what was going on and getting more involved in that. So he ended up um, taking over the company and rebranding his Look Again Eyewear. So mm-hmm. they're, they're still around. It's a bit less of um, like this kind of mass customization pipeline and it's more small tweaks customized to like off the shelf designs. So you can try on something in his showroom and then change things and they'll fabricate them. And it's pretty incredible. I actually stopped by last week for the first time since I stopped working there a few years ago. And Odin's done great work. It's really, really cool to see like how he's yeah worked through a lot of the pain points that we were struggling with. Hmm. This is a company here in Toronto and their manufacturing is here too? Yeah. So they're uh, on Geary Avenue as part of the Artisan Factory, which is like this warehousey building where the landlord just like uh, leases out a series of units, but he's trying to like bring in galleries and there's a distillery and there's like a dark horse coffee. I think it's where they do their roasting. Yeah. I mean, I guess artisan factory is a pretty descriptive name for what he's going for there. (laughs) One more thing I definitely have to ask you about Mm -hmm. in 2014, you were one of the founders of a wearables Kickstarter back before wearables were really anything. What was that like? Um, that was interesting. So it was through the social body lab and we'd gotten a grant to work with, um, this woman, Angela Mackey, who had previously lived in Toronto and she'd moved to Sweden um, because her husband was doing his PhD there. And um, it's actually the first project I worked on at the Social Body Lab. So we had this grant to develop a wearable modular cycling light with Angela, who had this brand Vega, and she was doing these integrated um, lights and jackets that were like pretty high fashion and like very high price point. I think they were like you know, 500 euros or more for a jacket. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah. So she like wanted, she wanted something that was a lower price point. So myself, Kate, Angela, and this guy, um, Jackson McConnell, who was a digital futures graduate student at the time, uh, worked on like this very iterative process of, yeah, prototyping and designing this light. And we came up with like this kind of slim profile LED uh, leather magnet thing. It's a bit hard to explain. It was like a trapezoid that clips onto the edge of your clothing or bag. And then, yeah, so after we finished this grant, we documented it and we we're all still really interested in the project. So we ended up putting together a Kickstarter that March. Mm. Um, we raised about $34,000 and we made like six or 700. And yeah, it was interesting. It's really challenging. I think one of the, um, major barriers to like wearables having higher level adoption is like we don't have 
manufacturing capacity or supply chains that like add together hard and soft substrates. Um, right. So lots of things like asking our sewing guy to put a circuit board in something. He's just like, no, <laughs> why would I do that? It just didn't make sense to him. It yeah. didn't make any sense. Um, so we ended up doing a lot of things manually. And another thing, I know this is like really been challenging for a lot of different Kickstarter projects. Estimating the cost of shipping is very, very hard. And we could have gone broke on shipping if we did not do some really silly, bizarre things to make shipping cheaper. Um, The one thing that we did not anticipate was how challenging it would be to ship something with a lithium battery. Uh, It was really important Mm. for us to make a rechargeable circuit, but then that meant we had an integrated lithium battery, which is classified as dangerous goods. So it got complicated from there. (laughs) And we had rare earth magnets, which were also classified as dangerous goods. Rare earth magnets are dangerous goods? Yeah, I think it's uh, something about like getting stuck to airplanes. Um, Yeah, so we had a lot of... Interesting so, challenges that we probably could have anticipated if we had anyone on our team who'd manufactured anything before. <laughs> um, so, yeah. you know, maybe some more mentors would have been helpful. Angela was also um, we pregnant during the whole thing. So she ended up having her baby like a couple months before we shipped. And she wow. had been like, don't worry, I'm going to have a baby and I'll be right back to work which this was her first kid and none okay. of us had had kids. So also <laughs> we did not know what to anticipate. And then she just like, yeah, dropped off for weeks because yeah. of course she did. She had a baby. <laughs> yeah. So really just a ton of unknowns that you faced, but you faced them early on. So this was five years ago that the Kickstarter happened. Yeah. So I imagine all of the things you've learned from there, you've been able to apply them in your later projects. Yes. and No, I did after that decide I wasn't necessarily going to work on large-scale manufacturing. I think it's really, really fascinating, and I'm actually totally obsessed with supply chains and mass manufacturing, but I also feel very badly about how much stuff there is in the world. Um, and so that's what brought me to do work, more like uh, working with the Toronto Tool Library and trying to like keep things in circulation longer. Like It's very exciting and cool to bring something new into the world, but I also feel like there's a lot of like designerly hubris of like people need my random thing. Mm-hmm. They probably don't. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I feel like I've actually shifted a lot more to like making one of a kind kind of imaginative surreal objects and then um, yeah, working to try to see things stay in circulation. Right. So thinking about the longevity of things yeah, rather than just like this knickknack, you want it. Yeah. Um, I feel like I have like this tension and things I'm obsessed with because like I'm really fascinated with how wildly effective um like global supply chains are like how someone will design something and within like weeks there's knockoffs on Mm -hmm. AliExpress proliferating across the world like I just think that's so fascinating but also like that kind of like just mass consumption and like really really fast turnaround is totally absurd and like terrible (laughs) for the planet um And I want to get into that, actually, because one of the residencies that you finished recently with OCAD Body Labs was related to, I think it was from the jumping point of the fact that China no longer imports a lot of poor quality uh, plastics and mm-hmm. 
what was the other one? Papers as well. Mm -hmm. So there's a ton of recycling that used to happen in North America where we would just ship it overseas and China would sort it out and process it and make it useful again. And that was a very polluting process. So they closed their doors to that, which left a lot of cities in the States saying, well, shoot, now what do we do with our recyclables? Yeah, so um, that was a really amazing opportunity um, as like being associated with um, OCAD, I was able to do a residency at Autodesk in San Francisco. Um, so they've got this truly incredible shop at Pier 9, which is like a machine shop on the bay. It's super bizarre and super beautiful. Like with a view of the harbor? Or a view of the yeah, water? and like it's on a pier. So like you're literally like on the water um, huh. using a CNC machine. It's very, <laughs> it's so, so wild. Um, and so I spent four months there as an artist in residence and yeah, so you kind of like laid out the, um, the parameters of the problem, but I was really exploring what was happening with this kind of trash ban in China. And it's like this really interesting moment in time, because as you said, lots of municipalities across North America don't really have the ability to process these materials and we're left without any kind of plan. I've stopped following it as closely, but um, lots of municipalities were landfilling. Mm -hmm. They're things that were like recyclable material, quote unquote. Um, and I think what I find really fascinating with the story is it brings awareness to the fact that like putting stuff in a recycling bin isn't inherently positive. Like I think that's really sold to consumer North American people is like, you're doing your part, you're recycling. And even before, you know, the shift in where materials were going globally, it's not necessarily just this virtuous cycle. There's all sorts of different factors at play. Um, mm -hmm. The one thing that like, I also don't necessarily believe, like I do think China was buying a lot of materials and they were being processed in ways that were unhealthy for the people who are doing that work. But at the same time, like uh, Adam Minter is this writer I really like who writes about global scrap trade a fair bit. He wrote um, Junkyard Planet and he's got a new book coming out recently called Secondhand. But he really cautions against viewing this kind of material exchange globally as like first world countries dumping stuff on third world countries because it is part of a market. Like these materials are being purchased. They're moving still through a market economy so it's not like people are just offloading them. Like this is an economic exchange and people might be taking on more personal risk than they would if their economic situation was different. But, um, you know, like those materials had been invited and that market did exist up until That's the right. point in time when they decided that market no longer was going to exist. Right. So it's, it's not garbage. These materials have value, some yeah. amount of value. But mm. like not necessarily tons of value. Not I don't know. tons of value, no. <laughs> Especially the poor quality plastics, as I learned. Yeah. They're like plastic bags and uh, plastic straws and things like that that are very difficult to recycle or they're just not economically feasible at all, really, to recycle. Yeah, mm. like apparently one of the biggest challenges that recycling facilities face is uh, something that is often called aspirational recycling. And it's just like people putting in all kinds of materials that they hope will get recycled. Right. Um, and it actually pollutes uh, a batch of recyclable material sometimes. Yeah. Like I think things like aluminum and PET, um, they make a lot of sense to recycle. But like a, you know, chip wrapper, 
Not, no. not so much. But then people just put them all in because they're like, I know it's one of my pet peeves. Like, don't don't put all that stuff that you hope is recyclable, but basically <laughs> isn't. Yeah, it's very bizarre, but I feel like companies are happy to have us believe that because they want us to think their products are recyclable, and then we'll mm-hmm. buy their products so we feel good about it. it doesn't mean they. But are. in the end of it all, yeah, it's not good. You you touched on something interesting, which is that recycling is a feel good thing, and we feel like we're doing our part. But really, the biggest, the two things before that in the Canadian uh, propaganda is reduce, reuse, and then recycle in that yeah. order. The first thing is to use less. The second thing is to find another purpose for it. Mm-hmm. Like I had a friend who he was years ago who would buy a lot of Soylent. He loved drinking Soylent <laughs> nice. before it was illegal. And he repurposed <laughs> all every single bottle to have his seeds start growing in the, oh, nice. in the spring before it was warm enough outside. And besides that, it was gorgeous to see like a hundred half Soylent bottles sprouting little <laughs> little beads. It was a very valid reuse of a substance that otherwise would just get chucked into a, a bin and hopefully recycled. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing that I didn't learn until a few years ago was recycling is a very resource intensive process. Yeah. Breaking down materials, especially papers and plastics, requires lots of chemicals, lots of heat or lots of energy, produces a lot of emissions. It's a very intensive process. So the idea that recycling is just going to like someone's going to snap their fingers and it's going to become a new bottle is, is nonsense. And I think for me, being aware of that process made me really change how I felt about recycling. Is there anything you want to you talk about that I haven't touched on in the world of makers or in the world of anything you've been interested in, frankly? Um, I don't know. I mean, right now, um, I'm going to actually be starting a master's degree in September, kind of looking at questions around global resource use and garbage recycling, social justice stuff. So I'm pretty excited about that. I think it's going to be an interesting, uh, hopefully, continuation of the work that I've been doing at Pier 9, as well as uh, expanding in, you know, some different directions. I'm going to focus, I think, more in, like, a Canadian context. I was looking very much at, like, the United States and China on the previous work. So I don't know entirely where that's going to lead. But, yeah, I feel like these kind of questions around global material flows and supply chains are good stuff really important questions for us to figure out as a populace yeah so you've worked on you said you started in this world of maker stuff in 2012 you've worked on a ton of projects including this kickstarter including little data including uh make change make change including the make change conference um what drives you what keeps you going i don't know i mean it sounds so silly, but like, I just really love making stuff. Like, man, the other day I was making stuff in my studio and like, it's just so fun. Um, and the kind of perhaps ironic things often getting really involved in maker spaces or like these big picture things takes me away from just like sitting down and, and making something. But I think I'm also really curious about like systems and large scale interactions, if that's not entirely apparent. Um, so it's always interesting to try to like connect people or see what something might do if you put it out in the world. Um, like I think I've been lucky that a lot of things that I've managed to do for money, like being a uh, part of this Kickstarter or working at Guild have also served to like answer some sort of question I have about how things might work. Like Guild, I was really exploring this mass customization uh, approach to production, 
which was also uh, what my thesis at OCAD was was exploring. So it was cool to get to like see that in uh, in reality and how like that plays out in the market. And then yeah, like with the Kickstarter, kind of getting to see what crowdfunding and launching something was all about. And then like this. The residency was also something that like kind of gave me time and space to explore these things. And I was part of a fellowship at Mars in, I guess, 2014. That was kind of a eight-month program that provided like, yeah, time and space and money to explore all these kind of different directions and different ideas I had for stuff. Um, and I think I just get really obsessed with like something or another and for better or worse, like can't help but see it through. Um, which can be like a bit of like, it's a lot of fun, but it can also be a bit of a destructive cycle where like, I don't know, like your whole sense of self is like tied to some idea that uh, is like totally So if it doesn't bizarre. work out, then you feel bad about it personally. Yeah. And I think like slowly as I get older, I'm better at like separating those, uh, those feelings. But yeah, I feel like community organizing and making art or design can be like a really emotionally exhausting um, <laughs> series of series of activities. Yeah. So what helps you to then recharge or rebuild for the next project? Um, I don't know. I feel like these like little moments of experimenting with something or just like doodling, finding some sort of technique. And then from there, it like builds and builds and builds into, yeah, something that's like a larger idea. So it's the exploration or almost discovery, it sounds like. Yeah. It's fun. <laughs> the, the one common thread that I've seen with a lot of people, you know, the big players in any community is curiosity. Mm-hmm. They want to see if I build this, if I do this, if I take this action, if I put this out there, what's going to happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that's like a really exciting thing to feel like you have power over. Like it's very satisfying to be able to like see cause and effect in the world in terms of like taking some kind of action, be it like, yeah, silly or serious or... Mm-hmm. What's going to happen? Or otherwise. Do you remember, how did you even get started in this community? How did you discover that you wanted to make stuff? I mean, before I was part of like the quote-unquote maker community with like a capital M, um, sorry, I'd always been quite involved in making stuff. So I was already like enrolled in OCAD in a studio art degree by the time I like started working in this context, I was part of um, a textile design degree and I'd been sewing since I was a kid. Like I remember like when I was even like eight years old, my parents getting me like saws and hammers and screwdrivers and stuff. Like I was just really compelled to build stuff and make stuff. Um, and I'd been quite involved in like the kind of Etsy indie craft world uh, for a while kind of before this, like that was some stuff I was doing through university and I was part of this independent fashion magazine called Warren Fashion Journal that was kind of like a nerdy indie cutesy uh yeah take on fashion and vintage fashion and all sorts of things like that you were part of that as a as a kid when you were younger no this was uh when I started university I think I was 19 when I joined um yeah like I was very involved in like sewing and fashion stuff but from like a DIY indie thing and like into like DIY zine stuff before that. Like I think even when I was in like middle school, I was very interested in zine making um, Mm. and like DIY punk kind of stuff. And I remember 
I was doing all the sales for Warren Fashion Journal, and we went to Detroit um, to be part of, like, Make Magazine. We used to have Craft Magazine. They were, like, buddies. Like, they were the same mm. um, kind of production. I think they were both O'Reilly. Anyways, Craft got axed way before Make. Also, as of this morning, RIP Make. Super mm. sucks. This morning? Um, yeah, no, I was mentioning that at the start of this. Make Magazine is, is oh, done. Oh, shoot, I didn't of, hear that. yeah. Um, but yeah, so we went to sell the magazine at this craft thing at a maker fair in Detroit. And like, I remember just kind of walking around and be like, oh, wow, look, people are just making their own robots. Mm-hmm. Whoa, laser cutters. Um, and I'd never really seen a lot of that stuff. I kind of knew vaguely it existed. Um, and then like, it took me a couple more years to really get involved, but I like had kind of visited a few maker spaces i read makers by cory doctorow and thought it was really cool um and like yeah i guess eventually managed to actually get involved at uh at some maker spaces hmm. so it's almost like the seed was planted young you knew you were going to be making things pretty early on and you were always involved in something or other yeah um and like i think being involved in communities has been really valuable to me like even now i still it's been 10 years since I joined that fashion magazine and I still have a number of quite close friends who, uh, who I made through that. And like, yeah, like people I meet through maker communities. Like I just got all these people I like so much. Yeah. And now you've seen all these different avenues too. Mm -hmm. Before it was, sounds like very fashion and very magazine focused and very simple. And then one day it was like, Oh, robots. Oh, lasers. Oh, woodworking. Um, which has been my experience in the last couple of years here in Toronto. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's everywhere now. And it's so much more accessible than it's ever been. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Like, there's just so many ways to get information and so many ways to get access to this stuff. Now, when you're thinking about a new project or a new area that you want to explore, what's the most challenging part of it, of putting it together? I feel like just focusing and finding that time to just uninterrupted do the work. Like, for better or worse, it's just everything else in life is easy to prioritize over just, like, you know, ideation and prototyping and creation. And, yeah, like, I find often collaborations easier because you then have someone else that you have to be accountable to. Anytime I'm trying to do a project on my own, it's, like, finding time to do it just absolutely (laughs) seems impossible, which is silly because it is me and myself. And like, I have nothing but time with myself, right? But I'm the exact same way. There's something human about that. As long as I'm accountable to somebody else, if I say, I'm going to have this podcast edited by Thursday, I will be way more likely to do that, even if the person doesn't care as much as I do. Right? It doesn't make any sense, but that's the way I've discovered myself to be. I mean, and like maybe this is part of this drive for people to like work together and all these things, but it's also, it's super frustrating. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the most challenging thing today is having that focus. What was the most challenging thing, let's say five years ago when you were much earlier into this space? Um, Thinking I knew everything. (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny. Like, I feel like when I was young, people were like, oh... I mean, I'm still young, but just people being like, you know, you, you're going to learn differently one day, the way you're approaching this is blah, blah, blah. Like, and I was like, yeah, whatever. Um, but like looking back, you were set on the way that you were going and you were doing it and you kind of weren't listening. Yeah. It's funny. Like, uh, my friend, Sarah Marie, who was the founder of that magazine, 
She's about 10 years older than me and had a similar background in textiles. And I used to complain to her to the end of the earth about how I had to do these samples at school. And I just had to like, I couldn't finish a project. I was just like trying out something. And then she was like, no, it's so fun. You're never going to have time to do that. Like that's the best part of making something like shut up. And I was like, oh, that's so <laughs> dumb. I just know what I want to make and I'm so good at making it. Um, and like, yeah, I feel like I've totally come around full circle on that. Like I could just like sit and make like a series of tiny explorations, uh, forever at this point and be like, wow, so interesting. Um, <laughs> Doing that, is that for you? Is it almost therapeutic or is that building towards your next project or your next idea? I mean, I think it's both like often just some little bit of some random thing will, yeah, lead to like an exciting exploration or something like that or sometimes it just doesn't and it's just like oh yeah that time that I did blah 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 but then maybe years down the road you know that like oh well if you use a light sensor like this you can make this happen uh there's this one artist whose work I think is really fascinating Hannah Perner Wilson she does a lot of like e-textile wearable stuff and predominantly her work is just like samples um she just like makes a lot of like soft potentiometers or switches or just like different kinds of soft sensors. Um, but then she's created like this incredible resource that like anyone who's getting into this kind of work tends to reference. Like Hannah's just got a wild amount of information that can then be used for people to kind of take and make their own. Interesting. So she's got like the little pieces, the little components that then someone could leverage to build something big and something unique. Yeah, definitely. I mean, she has done some some big projects over the years, but like I think mostly the way I know her work is through like these explorations and just like really nicely documented explorations. It's not always like a ton, yeah. but it's just like here's the thing, here's how I did it. And when you say soft potentiometer and components like that, do you really mean like flexible, malleable potentiometers? Yeah, totally. Uh, like oh, made out of conductive fabrics or threads or she'll appropriate mm. all kinds of different materials, everything from like coins to chains and like pins like like dressmaker pins and then yeah just kind of like integrate all of that into these really interesting soft circuits hmm, interesting i'm just i'm just imagining all the different like clothing or like what would you do with that would you make like a light display that you can adjust or i'm sure there's a lot more less naive applications but that's where my mind goes yeah, I mean, there's all there's all sorts of things. I can't think of a ton off the top of my head because, uh, you know, trying to like recall things on the spot is challenging. Yeah. But um, yeah, she's at kobakant.com, I, I think it is. It's like K-O-B-A-K-A-N-T. Um, and yeah, her, her work is just really, really interesting. All right, we'll definitely have that in the notes. Um, you've seen a lot of projects in, in Toronto and not all of them are successful. What have you seen that you thought would take off and didn't? And what have you seen that you were skeptical about but actually thrived? I think people really thought wearables were going to have higher consumer adoption than they did. Um, like, I've seen some different projects start up over the years. Like, there was even a Toronto wearables meetup that was really big for a while. There was hundreds of people going. It was at Mars. It was, like, free pizza and beer. Um, but that's entirely fizzled out, and the organizers who worked on that are now doing almost exclusively VR stuff, I believe. And for all the hype around that, like, there just never ended up being high consumer adoption. 
Um, even things mm-hmm. like Fitbits, which people did adopt, there wasn't like long-term follow through with using. Uh, and I think largely that's because mobile phones do a really, really good job at being on our person all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Phones are just like, right. There are everything. And mm-hmm. yeah, so the need for wearables was less because our phones are so capable and so readily available. Yeah. And like, maybe this is uh, a strange one. This is not like a company or anything. Well, Slack is a company, but uh, I'm really interested in how effective like Slack and Discord channels have been in like taking conversations off like Facebook or Twitter. And it seems like everyone's got these like, you know, niche uh, spaces like Toronto Civic Tech has like a Slack channel. It's really active and people are always like popping in to work on projects and that kind of thing. And it seems like it's almost the resurgence of like a kind of forum culture from like web Mm. 1.0 days. Yeah. Um, Because people are obviously gathering to work on projects and stuff, but I think they're also just gathering because people like gathering. (laughs) They like talking to people. (laughs) And they like talking about their interests with other people who are interested in the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I, I don't know. I remember when a friend wanted me to join Slack, we just talked about this yesterday. I was like, I don't need another chat app. Like stop. Um, no, Hillary, Slack is the future. I, I, I love Slack now. I have so many Slack channels. Mm. I can't even count the number of Slack and discord channels that I've been part of or been invited that are, this is just security in Toronto. This is just, you know, whatever niche topic it is. And they're vibrant. Like you're saying. Yeah. It's, fascinating um and i think like yeah people seem to be getting a lot out of it like it's a cool it's a cool thing the the slack or the slack and discord channels like sometimes i don't know how people have the time and the patience to be part of these big channels where there's tons of people talking yeah there's so much conversation coming through i feel like in a day i don't even check my emails readily enough let alone an interest slack channel well it's like sometimes you know, if you go on, uh, you're watching like a YouTube live, just like, uh, you know, lo-fi hip hop to study and relax to as you're going mm. through your day. And there's people on the sidebar who are like having conversations. Yeah. I'm just like, who meets people in a YouTube chat room? Why is there a chat room as part of this like anime girl chill radio station? Like, yeah. I have so many questions, but like clearly <laughs> some people it are works. getting something out of it. That one's been really unexpected to me that, mm-hmm. that people would gravitate towards that and and almost like build a culture or have a community around something as obscure as like a radio station with a little fox doing homework. Yeah, it's it's strange to me, but like I, I hope people are making friends and having a good time. <laughs> like I feel like, I don't know, um, like Twitter and Facebook being really associated with like one's real name. Like where do you just go and like make random internet friends Yeah, now? that's how the internet started. Anybody yeah. could call themselves Captain Obvious and that's your persona and own it. Yeah, like I feel like a lot of people um, I know have like kept in touch with people from their younger and they're like, oh yeah, like my my friend in Texas who I used to like raid with on WoW. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. There's there's less of that because of Facebook. Yeah. I think. And Twitter maybe is not the, the same comparison, but Facebook definitely where I felt it was my peers and, you know, people would add me that I went to junior school with that I haven't seen in years. But that it was almost like gimmicky. Mm-hmm. There wasn't anything valuable about there. Whereas I have the exact same memory of someone I used to play a, an antique video game with when I was a kid named Shady. <laughs> and I have no idea what his real name. He lived in the mid United States somewhere. And he was a massive part of my life. And we talked about everything. And then that was it. And 
the coincidental people I've met on the internet that have had actually a positive impact on my life have always been through some amount of obscurity and anonymity. Interesting. Well, Shady, if you're listening. Shout out to Shady if you're, if you're still <laughs> listening. You happen to find this podcast. Maybe he's my one listener in like Virginia. Or <laughs> yeah, he's been following you. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> so we've talked about a ton of what you've done in the past. Uh, what are you looking forward to next? Um, yeah, so as I mentioned, I'm going to be starting a master's degree in September. And I'm really interested in trying to connect some of this research I've been doing around uh, like global movement of materials to kind of like mapping and data visualization and like data materialization, if you will. Um, so I'm really interested in trying to make like sculptures with CNC machines that take different like geographic information and somehow, I don't know, map it in an interesting, meaningful way. It sounds very vague, but I'm working mm -hmm. on figuring out what exactly that uh, that looks like. I need to actually probably learn some JavaScript, which is right now my <laughs> barrier. Maybe I'll do some tutorials later today. Like my friend started walking me through D3. Um, and it was just clear that like I can't actually, you know, just do the D3 visualizations if I don't understand the syntax and I don't understand what the functions mm -hmm. are doing. Um, so I just need to like step it back a little bit. Well, you've picked a good time in history. I don't think it's ever been easier and more accessible than now. Yeah, it's pretty mm -hmm. wild. And um, the, other, the other things I'm interested in working on uh, in terms of little data stuff, Lee and I have been talking a lot about just space in different ways. Obviously, we've got the Skylab thing going on. Um, so potentially, we want to write a citizen space manifesto. I feel like citizen space is this term we started throwing around to be like in opposition to like billionaire space. Um, <laughs> so you've got like the Jeff Bezos and the Elon Musks and yeah. everyone else. And like, what do we want from space? Um, and then so there's a Toronto Space Club that's going to put together a balloon that's going to go I don't know if it goes entirely into low orbit but it goes quite high and then it like takes aerial pictures and it's got like this raspberry pi thing wow. um and it can have about I think 500 grams is the payload so we want to put some copies of this manifesto that we'll write into the thing and then it'll go <laughs> on the slow. thinnest paper we can find to make yeah, it light. Totally. And like hopefully wow. the most biodegradable. <laughs> um, and then, so yeah, when the balloon explodes, all the stuff like spreads out and then I guess there's a GPS on the raspberry Pi. So then the idea is so you can find it. Yeah, yeah. You drive to go find it and like recover your, uh, your SD cards and that kind of thing. That's incredible. I had no idea there was a Toronto space community here. Yeah, I went to, I've only gone to one meetup so far. It was pretty small. It was like less than 10 people. Um, but it was fun. We're drinking pints and talking about space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which your your friend, um, who you've worked on many projects with, who's in love with space, I imagine. She's the one who found that and brought you there. Yeah, and so um, Eric Boyd, who's what, like the guy with the, with the North Paw, is also one of the Hack Lab board members. He's one of the main organizers as well. Like, Man, you should have Eric Boyd on your podcast. That guy does so much stuff. His name's come up. I think this is the second time it's come up. So, Eric, yeah. if you're listening, you're 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 my next victim. He's always doing it. Like, yeah, he's done manufacturing. He does lots of programming stuff. He's gotten into like VC funding recently. He's into all the space mm. stuff. Me and him might do some organizing around climate change stuff. Very busy yeah. dude. <laughs> Definitely. Hmm. Are there any Are there any communities in Toronto that you were particularly surprised to find out about i can't remember exactly what it's called so that's not going to be super helpful but there's like 
an vintage film collective kind of place somewhere in Dufferin my friend was telling me about and he was talking about how they just keep and maintain a lot of like analog film equipment for like making film so he was helping um repair some sort of like camera gantry thing and this is all like available for indie producers and I thought that was like super super wild and super exciting but I don't know I feel like not a lot surprises me anymore because like someone will be like oh yeah this is my um you know robot building collective where we like uh do ddr Mm. training every tuesday and i'm like oh cool great like i love living in a big city because of just like the fantastic bizarre things that people get up to yeah these amazing little pockets that you never would have never would have guessed that's that's one of the goals i think of this podcast is to find these little pockets and shine a light on them. What are you guys doing? What are you guys building? Yeah, I want to um I want to go to more things around like the like kind of modular synth community. I have a few friends who've started getting mm. into it and like yeah, modular synthesizers seem super interesting. I would I would love to know more cuz I share that interest and I it wouldn't surprise me if if Dead Mouse left a trail of of interest <laughs> behind him when he left Toronto. But um I've I've had a friend almost talk my ear off about it and a, quite a bit of it went over my head. I don't yet know much about that space, that stuff, but I would love to like, cause I love technology and not just, you know, the Arduinos and the code stuff, but like the older sort of, um, how did they solve these problems before they could write code? How did they do yeah. it from a circuit perspective? And I think that's one thing, um, a lot of people learning tech now, myself included, don't necessarily get exposed to like when, Somebody shows me something like a timer circuit that's just, you know, using a chip. I'm always like, wow, like to me that can't yeah. happen without a computer. And like, yeah, I think like dialing back our absolute belief in computers as the be all and end all like tech solution yeah. to uh, imagining it could happen otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when I reached out to you, you said that you were very busy at the time. You had to wrap up a couple projects. Oh, yeah. What was going on for you in the month of May? Uh, so I actually have just left my job at the Toronto Tool Library. So I was, yeah, working on wrapping up all of that and kind of like documenting everything I'd been doing and training other people and handing off all that stuff. Were you just, you'd had enough of that? You were on to the next thing or what, what happened there? Um, yeah, it just was a really intense year working there. Um, so like the makerspace had to move and the business model and like legal structure of the entire organization was overhauled and it was a lot to uh, to work on all those things. I mm-hmm. like hope and really believe that I've set things up in a pretty good way. So things will be, uh, yeah, hopefully quite successful moving forward. But just like, I think it was time for me to take a step back because it just has been like pretty all consuming for, for the past year and I haven't had a chance to work on any of these other projects. Mm-hmm. So it's taking up too much of your focus. Yeah. And that, that is the hardest part. You're not the first person I've heard say that the hardest part is focusing on one thing and not being distracted by all the things that, you know, you should do, you should focus on. Yeah. And the other thing I did at the end of May was I went on vacation to Wisconsin to go to WizCon, which is a feminist science fiction convention. And it was great. <laughs> it was so cool. <laughs> What is a feminist science fiction uh, conference? Uh, I like. I didn't really know what to expect. A friend, uh, Jim Monroe, who's a science fiction writer, and Sagan Yi, who's the executive director of Hand Eye Society, 
um, we're going to go. And they were like, do you want to check this out? And I said, Naturally, yes. Naturally, you yes, were like, of course. <laughs> sounds very cool. Um, and it was really fascinating. It was everything from like uh, authors reading their work to panels just about kind of esoteric questions around genre fiction and the world and life. Everything from like, is hope punk really a genre? To um, like, how can we deal with catastrophes and how does fiction help us think about that? Um, and then there was like, you know, fan panels like She-Ra and just um, parties, all kinds of stuff. Uh, it was really interesting. And like, it's kind of interesting because as I mentioned earlier, like I'd worked in indie publishing years ago. Uh, so it's kind of cool to like come back to that world from a different way. And more from the outside this time. as a Yeah. And there's a lot of people doing a lot of really interesting, exciting work. Like I would be like, I just really like science fiction that is political and it's like pushing the boundaries of what we think about humans and space and time and like what is the value of civilization in like a, the vastness of a universe. Um, so yeah, it was like really fun to just like have a space to have these totally bizarre conversations about right. these topics. In yeah. a very serious <laughs> manner where people actually get into it all the way. Yeah, it was yeah. so fun and like... <laughs> Oh my God. Like the one thing I think is so funny is I feel like I'm very well read when it comes to, you know, science fiction stuff. I read constantly and I was just like, definitely like, so not well read compared to everyone I met there, which was awesome. I'm like, Whoa, everyone knows so many things. I don't know. Um, so it was exciting. You've talked about a ton of science fiction books. Do you have any strong recommendations or favorites that you want to share? Um, my favorites I've read recently Charlie Jane Anders was one of the authors I met at WizCon, and uh, I bought her book, All the Birds in the Sky. It was really, really incredible. I feel like um, she, in this really like compelling, wonderful, fun narrative, takes on like the question of if humans should leave Earth to colonize the galaxy, or if we should stay on Earth to kind of stay with the trouble and try to, you know, repair mm. damage we've done to this planet in a way that like is way less serious than I just made that sound. Like, it's such an incredible book. Um, and another book I really enjoyed recently was Tim Mon's Infinite Detail. And this is like a post-apocalyptic novel about what would happen if the internet was to collapse and kind of all associated infrastructure that relies on it was to no longer work. Mm, so um, just overnight, all of that vanishes. yeah. And it's really compelling. It's like quite cyberpunk, but not in the same like grim, dark kind of 90s cyberpunk way. Like there's a lot of kind of hopeful um, aspects to it. And there's a lot of exploration about like what decentralized technologies could and would mean, but in a way that's a bit less um, like didactic than a Cory Doctorow novel. Um, <laughs> a bit more lighthearted. Yeah, I love Cory Doctorow's writing, but sometimes it just seems like it's like a it's like a manual for like how one might set up your uh, like public <laughs> and private keys, which is like good. It's just yeah, it's very specific. <laughs> it's very gotcha. Cory Doctorow. Um, <laughs> and another thing I've been reading that's not a novel but um, is a speculative fiction newsletter is called Training Commission, and it's like kind of exploring AI and governance in this like near future America where an AI is taken over as like 
what the governmental system is. Um, and like, mm. you have to download this decentralized browser to access files that are part of this narrative. And it's super, super interesting in like the approach and, um, yeah, just how everything is spaced out. Uh, they use tiny letter and like some of the emails just keep getting lost. So I've like missed a couple chapters, which is a bummer, but hopefully like at some point they're mm. all just made available, but hopefully they get compiled into a book or a, some kind of story. Yeah, but yeah. actually using email as the delivery mechanism is very interesting. Like, I think it's like this really effective use of email inboxes as a medium, which I've never thought of before. It's like an artistic <laughs> thing. I don't know. I think it's very cool. I like read huh. the whole thing the other night and I was just like, wow. Yeah, I'd never considered that, that to ingest a story in a form other than an ebook or a book or a podcast. Yeah. I don't know. I'll see where this all goes, but um, one of my friends had invited me to talk at Toronto Civic Tech in a few weeks. I don't exactly know what date we'll end up on, but I've convinced him that I can talk about sci-fi and civic organizing. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got to um, refine my my obsession with all of these things. But I really do believe that, especially in like a time like today where there's really complex, bizarre problems facing humanity and like civilization I think we need different kinds of narratives to break away from getting the same kinds of outcomes Mm -hmm. um because yeah whatever you know brings us through the risks and challenges of you know affecting the entire climate of our planet um and that and and you know exhausting resources and mostly the climate change thing and yeah, and like the, the entire are. breakdown of uh, truth in media and like the understanding of like yep. <laughs> connecting as a civil society and being able to like have a, a public safety net. Anyways, we, we live in really bizarre times. So yeah. I believe science fiction can help <laughs> us through these. This is my uh, this is my thing lately. Got it. Just being exposed to those new ideas because it is new ideas that we're going to need to tackle these problems. Yeah, definitely. One of the more interesting ones that you've touched on is the the AI politician, which was a, also an episode of Black Mirror with that oh, little interesting. blue teddy bear looking guy. Where I haven't actually watched much Black Mirror. I should, but it's just like, it's so dark. It's so, I know. I can't watch it alone and I can't watch it if I have to be in any sort of a good mood the next day. <laughs> yeah, like I feel like any ones I've watched, I end up like holding my face and I'm just so stressed out. Um just it's yeah. great that they can like make that like media that that is that moving. Yeah. But I'm, I'm so glad stressful. somebody is talking about these things. Yeah, totally. It's necessary because it, it's those ideas that if we had never been exposed to, then they would blindside us when they happen in the real world. Yeah, I'm not sure how it's turned out, but I should look up. Uh, Jordan Peele is doing Twilight Zone, so far as I understand. Um, and I really loved like Rod Serling's classic Twilight Zone growing up because it's just. Yeah, I don't know, these like alternative realities that I feel like reflect on the fears of society at that time in really interesting ways. And I'd be mm. I'd be curious to see if he's carried that through. I haven't actually watched um Get Out, but apparently like, you know, his horror is very It was good. excellent. It was I I, I, I saw it and I recommend it to everybody. Yeah. Um it's in terms of horror, most horrors are I I would almost use the word cheap. But this was very well put together. It's an excellent story. But what's uh, let's talk a little bit more about Twilight Zone. Because I'm not sure what that is. Can you give me a little bit of background? Oh, man. The Twilight Zone was like 
yeah, it must have been 1960s, black and white, and they were just like, I feel like it's definitely been uh, like satired in like The Simpsons and Family Guy and a lot of media. So, like a lot of the tropes are pretty familiar. But it'll be like a voiceover about so and so, just a man living his life until he's transported to another planet. He's entered hmm. the Twilight Zone. Um, it's like really <laughs> cheesy, but this guy Rod Serling who wrote it, I believe he also adapted. Um, Planet of the Apes, who was just like a very, yeah, he was like a very clever writer and he was able mm-hmm. to capture a lot of interesting human interactions or just like, yeah, kind of, I don't know, have like really straightforward commentary on different things. Uh, it's been a long time since I watched it, but yeah, I just used to love, love watching it when I was, when I was like a mm-hmm. teenager. And it sounds like good at creating these other worlds and it, designing and figuring them out yeah and like quite quickly because like you know it was one of those things where there's no continuity episode to episode they're all like kind of one-off vignettes so right like things yeah just like the exposition has to be like fast and straightforward and clever and like understandable Hmm. yeah i don't know love that love it i've got a soft spot for people who can create those fully fleshed out worlds Mm -hmm. and and just because then at that point it's the reader it's me going through and exploring these different aspects oh of course the people who lived in that world assembled in this way because mm-hmm. based on the constraints, that's what makes sense. But it's always so fascinating that because they're so different from the world that we live in every single day mm-hmm. that I, I gobble that stuff up, man. I can't get enough of it. I'm definitely going to find you on Goodreads and <laughs> take a take a look at everything. I actually don't use Goodreads. I've been like struggling figuring out how to track what I'm reading. Maybe I should just use Goodreads. I just feel like it always gives me stupid suggestions. And like for some reason, it makes me angry. <laughs> um, I just feel like, yeah, I, just, I don't understand how it gives me such bad suggestions. I, I take 0%. I only use it to track what I'm reading and take a look at what my friends are reading. Yeah, maybe maybe I'll like try to get things on that. Cause like on my to do mm-hmm. list, I just have like this persistent thing. I was like, how to track what books I read? Mm-hmm. And, like there is a thing for that. <laughs> maybe this is an opportunity. Maybe we gotta collaborate and build something. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I just feel like there's. I actually asked on Twitter a while ago, and I got a few interesting responses. Um, some people were just like, I just like keep a spreadsheet. Some people had like little pages on their website. It was almost like like a Tumblr sort of like just like these like mm. short uh, posts about any specific book they'd read and just like maybe a couple thoughts, maybe not. Right. So it was more for them than anybody else, but they happened to put it on their website. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I've thought about that, that kind of thing a bunch of times, just like I would like to track my expenses and what categories of things I spend money yeah. on transportation or food or the podcast. Um, and then the easiest way to then like visualize it at the end is probably by building a little thing on the web. And at that point, well, I might as well just throw it up on the website and I can have access to it whenever I want. Yeah, nice. But I haven't haven't gotten around to that project just yet. Well, we've covered everything uh, I, w- I wanted to ask you about and we're at time as well. All right. Um, so is there anything that you'd like to plug or communities you'd like to make a shout out to? Um, I don't know. I feel like I mentioned pretty much all the communities that, uh, yeah, that came to mind, I guess. If anyone is ever interested in looking for a private studio, if they have their own art or maker practice and they want to uh, have somewhere to work out of, I work with a collective, ABC collective, and we're often looking for new members. So feel free to find me on Twitter, uh, reach out and I can tell you more about that. 
And is Twitter the best way to get a hold of you? Um, yeah, generally. Okay. Okay, Hillary, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I was in New York, Brooklyn, New York. Thank you, Hillary, for being on the podcast. I've been to Toronto's makerspaces before this interview, but there's way more going on than I knew about. If you'd like to learn more about anything we discussed, there's tons of links in the episode notes. The other day, I needed a hacksaw to finish a project. I went to borrow one from the Toronto Tool Library, finished my project, and I didn't have to worry about where to keep a hacksaw in my tiny apartment. I love finding things like this. Working on this episode was a lot of fun for me. I enjoyed it. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. Thank you also to the Maker Bean Cafe for being an awesome place to sit down and get work done. Not only is it a beautiful space, but there were people making things the entire time I was there. As always, we feature music from a local Toronto band. This is by Shy Kids, called I Was in New York. So, so.